everyone. Thanks so much for joining us today for our podcast, No Stupid Questions. I'm Dr. Kim Bissell, the Southern Progress Endowed Professor in Magazine Journalism and the Associate Dean for Research in the College of Communication and Information Sciences, or CNIS, at the University of Alabama. And I'm Dr. Annalisa Voland, an assistant professor in the Department of Communication Studies, also at the University of Alabama. And we both work in the Institute for Communication and Information Research, or the ICIR at UA. So in the past eight months, in just eight months, we saw sports largely disappear from courts and stadiums and soccer fields, et cetera. And now they're slowly starting to reemerge. Thank goodness. And we're <laughs> both sure. Right. And we're both uh, pretty big sports fans. So like many folks, we have, we just missed the sports, but that doesn't mean that we haven't been hearing from athletes. Athletes continue to inspire us and educate us and continue really to be leaders in our community and in our country. And as sports are starting to come back, I think that we might almost start binge watching sports, whether it's a team or even a sport that we weren't previously into. Um, I think I'm going to be doing that. Um, uh, yeah, I've been watching Bundesliga, and who would have guessed that? <laughs> and, and that raises some questions, um, for me anyway. So one question I've had is like, do women get as much coverage as men in something like the Olympics? Is that a stupid question? I think that's an excellent question. And our next guest has all the information and insight into the world of sports. Because beyond being one of the biggest sports fans I know, and that is really saying a lot, he is one of the most well-known sport communication scholars in the world. Yes, you heard that right, in the world. Dr. Andy Billings is the Ronald Reagan Chair in Broadcasting at the University of Alabama and has written more books than some people probably have even read literally that many books. He has studied everything from the Olympic Games and the way athletes of different races, gender, or nationality are represented. He studied sports fandom, esports, the mascots that are used for teams, and everything in between. We had a really great conversation with Dr. Andy Billings about this crazy world of sports that we are in, and he has shared some great insights into the way sports may be may be becoming an even bigger part of our lives. So welcome, Andy. Thank you so much. So before we get started, I have to ask this. We've had all types of sports from professional sports to Little League come to a halt for several months. So what's your take on whether you'll be watching your beloved Packers this fall? Certainly it won't be the same. Even if they do manage to have a season, it might have a delayed start. It certainly, it sounds like no fans. Uh, If we do have fans, it's going to be a limited number. So it's been interesting. I'm actually working with uh, Larry Wenner and Marie Harden on an edited book right now that's not about the pandemic per se as much as what the pandemic revealed about sports. What, you know, uh, it's revealed, for instance, how a lot of universities count on football as not just a sports product, but really a reason for out-of-state students to come in, a reason for alums Mm -hmm. to come in and and build those relationships. It reveals a lot of things. And one thing we're finding out is if sports are happening without fans there, what is lost? 
and de- depending right. on the sport, uh, quite a bit. I think golf has gone on pretty well without it, but uh, football, it's, it's really hard to imagine. <laughs> it yeah. is really hard to imagine, but I have to say when uh, I saw the news this morning talking about the first MLB game um, being played today, I was like, I don't even care who's playing. I'm watching it. <laughs> yeah. oh. Nobody would be watching, but... And- I'm watching that. I I have a 13-year-old in the house who is very excited that the Indiana Pacers are about to play their first scrimmage game. Not not actual game, scrimmage (laughs) game. And it is on TV because we'll watch anything. (laughs) That's exactly right. All right. So shifting gears um, back to the, the research that you've been doing, can you tell us a little bit about how you got started in, in the research that you do? Uh, yeah. You know, it's it's been about 25 years of doing sports research now, ever since I was in grad school. And what always interested me was, yeah, sports, and I'm a sports fan, but it's always about when sports aren't about sports anymore. So it's always about what can sports tell us about what we value or about the roles that people play within our society? And so I started in the 1990s with uh, Dr. Susan Eastman uh, at Indiana University looking at the Olympic telecast and saying, okay, what, what does this telecast say about how we value women athletes or mm-hmm. athletes of different races or different nations? And then that has really expanded in a number of ways where I'm, I'm constantly trying to find, okay, what does X tell us about Y? And mm-hmm. usually X is something sports related and Y is something not. And so, you know, mm-hmm. for instance, you mentioned fantasy sports. The reason I was interested in that was because at its core, I always thought the presumption in sports media research was the reason we watch is to see who wins. Mm-hmm. And fantasy, uh, for many people, takes that out of the equation. They don't care which team wins. They just care that their player scores right. Um, right. or that or some other player doesn't score. And so it was changing the foundation of what we think sports media is. So once again, it's it's about sports, but it's not. And that's always where I find it to be a lot of fun. Well, so then I have to ask, I saw this headline this morning, um, why esports is integral to student recruitment and how to bring it to your campus. So this is another topic and area that you studied. Do you see this as a viable possibility? Well, it's interesting because I certainly think it's going to get big um, or bigger. It is big already. Um, I think a lot of people don't realize if you look at the uh, most streamed minutes in the United States, uh, YouTube is number one, Netflix is number two, and number three is Twitch. And, and that really gives you a sense of the amount of streaming and the amount of interest that there is in esports. The catch, though, is a lot of the esports participants don't want to be called athletes and don't necessarily want to be part of what we call sports culture. And also on the other side, there's a whole lot of people who say, hey, this is not what I call sports. And so there's resistance on both sides, and yet there's clear interest in esports in and of itself. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's big business, it's exciting. And uh, when you recruit esports participants, I know we always hear they practice 16 hours a day, but somehow they still find a way to be a 4.0 GPA type person. So you, you've got some really sharp people who are playing. So, 
so Andy, if you had to, so I'm going to kind of flip this around on you. If you had to come up with a headline for one of your most interesting findings, what might that be? Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm going to lead into it here and give you two headlines before I have the one where I'm currently at. So when I started, when I started in the 1990s, my headline was basically that sports deserve to be a part of what we analyze in mass media. People weren't really doing much in sports. Uh, they thought it was fluff. They thought it was, you know, it was not serious in some way. And so you had to make a case for it. And about midway through this process, you know, 10, 10 15 years ago, even then that the headline became sports are the biggest part of mass media. And the first book I did was the Olympics uh, being the biggest uh, show in television. And I'm saying, you know, I was making the case that, okay, in this bell curve, if you look at what's at the center, sports tend to be the largest ratings, the largest audiences and all that. And now, you know, one book project I just finished this summer with uh, Bill Benoit was the rise and fall of mass communication. And now I think the headline is sports are the only thing left that yeah. actually constitute what we know as mass media. And you know, hmm. what I mean there, for instance, like, you know, if you look back at, you know, the, the finale of MASH in the 1980s, mm -hmm. 106 million people watched. And, you know, we, you know, we had lesser numbers for Seinfeld or Friends, but still 40, 50 million people. Um, the finale of Modern Family, one of our most beloved shows uh, this year, uh, mm -hmm. was 7 million viewers. Uh, wow. What gets more than that? Not not just the NFL draft, but day two of the NFL draft. <laughs> um, day one doubles that number. And so I think we're talking about a lot of things that we say, yeah, they're mass media. And I'm not saying people don't watch them, but they often aren't watching them in the masses that they used to and certainly not in the same way. I mean, we can get worked up over... Uh, you know, what Sean Hannity said on one side or Trevor Noah said on the other. But the bottom line is Fox News, even in the evening, draws 1% of all Americans. And The Daily Show, it's less than that. And so really, I think the headline now is, you know, what happens to what we call mass communication if there are no masses for anything except for mm -hmm. sports? That's a very good headline. So when you think a lot of your work sort of entails current what's going on right now you've done so many studies on the olympics so when you think about what's going on right now kind of the the way sports have looked with the global pandemic um athletes testing positive for covid19 athletes taking a stand on black lives matter um, we've thought about sports often as a way to bring people together who may be on opposite sides, you know, based on who your, your fan favorite is. But they say that sports unifies people. But do you see this as a point where there may be a divide because of what's happening with the athletes right now? You know, there is a, there is a divide, and I hear that sometimes, but I don't think it's causing people to wholly tune out in some way and I'll, I'll tell you you know it was a few years ago uh back when we really are were in the the midst of of uh I, I guess it was 2016 and we were in the midst of Kaepernick kneeling and that kind of thing and and I did a lot of media interviews about NFL ratings are down nine percent 
uh, boy, this is really, you know, Kaepernick kneeling is really hurt. And you, you've got to look at it. And you've got to say, well, first of all, I think the election uh, was drawing a lot of people away. It was drawing people away from everything. There were all sorts of factors. The major cities, uh, New York, uh, Los Angeles didn't have a team at that point. Chicago, they were all bad at pro football. And so then, you know, you really try to dwindle it down and say, I think there's only like one or two percent of people who said, I'm not going to watch NFL football because of Kaepernick Mm -hmm. kneeling. Mm -hmm. And so I think there's a whole lot of people who want to claim they're out, but this is a part of who Mm -hmm. they are. Are they really going to stop, you know, what they watch on the weekend simply because of one person that they probably weren't going to watch anyway? They might not watch that game and we don't tend to even televise the anthem. And, right. And, <laughs> and, and back to, you know, so, so you really have to break through it. You, you aren't saying that those things don't matter. But if you say, are people going to turn to something else? Uh, most of the evidence shows we don't. So I think, I mean, what, one of the things that this, this highlights is the, the importance of research um, mm-hmm. and for asking questions and, and not just making assumptions. Um, so in your kind of typical research, um, what are, what are your, um, data collection methods? How do you go about getting started? Some of those kinds of things. Yeah. For me, one thing that I've been very fortunate with is, you know, I, I won't claim full expertise on any one method or whatever it is there, but I'm at least functional on a lot. And so if the question I want to ask um, is in a more, let's say, qualitative interview realm, I can at least play uh, in that ground and get the work done. Or, you know, I I occasionally can do uh, rhetorical or critical cultural work, but most of my stuff is empirical. The large majority is well, I, I guess now I'd say if I were to break it down, we're about 40% content analysis, 40% survey, and 20% uh, experiment. Mm-hmm. Um, but really, to me, the question you ask dictates everything. And uh, so if you just say, I only do this method, then the large majority of questions you'd like to answer often can't be answered through that one method. So just to kind of follow up on that, when you're talking about designing these studies, are you working with people in other disciplines? Are you working with people who are mostly in mass communication? And what kind of um, leverage or what kind of leeway do you have to work with others who are who are not in our field? You know, I, I think I have pretty good leeway. Um, to start to think, you know, lots of times now it's someone else, you know, especially a doc student comes in and says, I want to find out about this. And then we brainstorm it together. But if I have a question, then the first thing I start to think through is, I guess, number one, who has expertise in different areas? And what Mm -hmm. I mean there is I don't want four people who all do the same thing well. Um, I want people with different parts of it. Uh, you know, maybe a person like, I know this person knows niche gratification theory well, and I know this person could help with uh, survey design or whatever it is. And then I really start to think through that old model of, you know, what we try to do with our doc students, which is year one, I do, year two, we do, and year three, 
you do and I watch. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And so you try to think through what types of experiences are these people ready for uh, at at their given time. So lots of times, especially if I just need someone to do deep background on uh, studies in a certain area or, you know, just create annotated bibliographies or run something through IRB for the first time, that's a first year student. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas a lot of my people who are working on dissertations now, I want to make sure they're working straight off with a data set and they're writing up their own results and, and things like that. So you really try to think about what what is a reasonable next step that they can still feel positive about, that they can get a win. And mm-hmm. then you start to combine that with, okay, is there anyone else at another university or uh, even across campus uh, that would be ideal for it? So I work a lot in teams at this point. And part of it's because I think this is a lonely field uh if you are always working by yourself and you know especially those rejections it's kind of nice if you get a journal rejection to have three or four people talking about how reviewer two sucks uh, but, but but uh for the most part that's that's worked out awfully awfully well i think i've had over a hundred different collaborators at this point in my career wow. and uh-huh. and it's kind of fun to to look back at that and say yeah the, these are people I've worked with on such and such a project and you've you've had that bonding experience I'm not sure there are very many people who can actually say that that's right that's pretty impressive how do you um in in this vast arena um how, how do you pick a question? You know, uh, I always think you don't want to be completely out in left field. You, you don't want to be like, well, you know, it, it's kind of like lots of our students. They'll say, well, I'm going to do this because no one's ever done that before. And you start to think, well, maybe there's a reason why they haven't done that before. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but you also don't want to be the eighth person to do basically the same thing. And so mm-hmm. you're you're trying to think of, where could this conversation lead? Uh, what What is the next logical step for this conversation? So I think, for instance, the mascot book uh, that I did with Jason Black was a good example of that, because certainly others had written not just journal articles, but books on Native American mascots. And, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, they'd made their cases there. And in many ways, some people thought there were no new angles to that and Jason and I started to say you know what if we yes we're going to try and solve some things but what if we just try to figure out what the fault lines are where 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 are we trying to figure out why why are both of these sides looking at each other and saying you shouldn't care this much and (laughs) and clearly you do or else you would have backed down and so really that became a, let's find out where the fault lines all are. And many of them were not even about sports. They were about politics and political correctness and the difference mm-hmm. between telling someone uh, they should do something as opposed to they should have to do something. Mm-hmm. And, and that really seems to be a big thing that gets revealed in sports a lot. I remember 20 years ago uh, when we were, saying, should Augusta National have a female member? Most people, if you said, should they, the answer is yes. 
But if you said, <laughs> should you have to, should Augusta have to or be forced to, that was where some people drew the line. And so you, you, you try to find out where the fault lines are so you at least are having the same conversation in some right. way. Mm -hmm. And that's really where I think the fun resides. So I know that you mentioned when you first got into research, you were studying the Olympics and looking at how female athletes were being represented. So we're a year out, hopefully, from the Olympic Games. Um, how have you th seen things change and evolve? And I know that that could answer, you know, that could be a two hour answer, but yeah. <gasps> what sort of bigger picture things have you seen in all of the studies that you've done? You know, in the Olympics, it's been interesting because I could certainly talk about race or nationality, but I think the thing people seem to care about or at least, you know, really be drawn to the most is gender. And uh, when we started, the first analysis I ever did was in 1996. It was the Atlanta Games. And those have been dubbed the Title IX Games because they were 24 mm -hmm. years after Title IX, which meant most of the athletes competing in it had never lived in a world that didn't have Title IX. Um, and so we, we wanted to test that there. We were still finding Olympics where men were shown uh, twice as often as women, especially for whatever reason in the winter. It was always worse gender representation in the winter than the summer. Um, mm -hmm. Where we've gotten now with the Olympics is three of the last four uh, NBC primetime telecasts have had the majority of the coverage focus on women. Um, oh, and wow. so it's really, even including uh, the 2018 Winter Games, uh, which was interesting because I even, you know, I've, I've become friends with some people in NBC research and I know, you know, I did a couple media spots saying it looks like men will still be the majority here. And uh, Greg Hughes at NBC emailed me and said, wait till you see what we're about to do tonight. <laughs> and it was less than one minute of men and the rest was women for four, four and a half hours. And, wow. and I think the key thing there was a lot of people didn't talk about it. They didn't even notice it. Um, it was, mm -hmm. we tuned into the Olympics. We expect to see men and women. We don't necessarily, you know, very few people tune in to say, I want to see how the American men do or how the American women do. <laughs> they, they just want to watch their countrymen compete. And so it, it's been mm -hmm. interesting to see how that's progressed. Some people say then that that's proof that we've gone overboard. And I've said, well, the American women are winning about 56% of the medals. And <laughs> they, sh they get about 56% of the coverage. Then that's about right where we should be. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Which is so different from virtually any other form of sports media where coverage is down in 1% or 2%. Wow. So let's uh, let's shift gears slightly. Um, tell us about how the pandemic has affected your research. Yeah. Well, it, <laughs> it it's tough because you know in this field, anything let's say that you research now, um, you know, let's say I come up with a study today. Well, then of course I'll have to run it through human subjects. I'll have to collect data. I'll write it up. Best case scenario, I'm presenting it a year from now. And you might very well paint yourself in a corner on this. Uh, mm -hmm. You might say, well, I want to investigate the college football season. And then all of a sudden you don't have a college football season. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and so uh, you, you really try not to do that. I think the biggest thing I've struggled with is 
you know, we, we tend to want to say that the pandemic changed everything. And I get, you know, that it really becomes the context in which everything occurs. But what you don't want to do is say it changed everything. Therefore, everything we ever knew about sports before is moot. Uh, mm-hmm. That we should just toss it all out and basically build a brand new knowledge base. Because I, I don't think that's the case. I think it revealed some things uh, that we already knew. And it showed us, once again, those fault lines, you know, to see, mm-hmm. wow, is it really the case that the college football team uh, at your local university constitutes essential workers? And, right. and people are making that case. They're saying, hey, if we don't want half of the hotels to shutter, we need to be able to have football weekends. If we don't want our mm-hmm. restaurants to close, we need those football weekends. And so it's a really weird case when you start to say the pandemic is showing sports are not just this fluff thing on the side. They are in many ways a driver of lots of local economies. Certainly. Well, to end this on kind of a fun note, as academics, we have the good fortune of being able to travel to different countries or different cities to either present our research at conference conferences or be a keynote speaker. I know you've traveled all over the place. What are some of the favorite places that you visited or some of the places that you're looking forward to visit when we are able to do so? Oh, gosh, you know, we missed out on Australia this summer, and I'm still really bummed about that <laughs> because that's, that's one place I have not been. Um, but, uh, you know, a lot of my favorite places are European cities. I I'd probably put at the top of the list uh, Barcelona mm-hmm. and uh, w- we have a really good relationship with the Autonomous University of Barcelona there. I once was there a visiting professor of Olympism and that has led to other projects. And so I've always enjoyed going there and, uh, um, you know, seeing colleagues there. The other place I'll put as one of my favorite places to go, it's not for a conference, but uh, I've done some work with the International Olympic Committee that requires going to their archives and to their library, which is in uh, Lausanne, Switzerland. Switzerland and uh yes, yes. um and that's a fantastic place uh yeah. to, to visit and just it, it, I always find that very centering and peaceful and uh a fun place uh to go and do research for a couple of days so those are some places there I guess the last thing I'll mention I've gone to China multiple times mm-hmm. and some of the colleagues there have become good friends uh they you know, before we even knew we needed masks, somebody had already sent me masks all the way from China. And so we found out, oh, wow. we, you wow. know, these things really help. And so it's, mm-hmm. it's great to have just this cohort of people all around the world. For sure. Cool. Well, Andy, thank you so much for your time. And thank you so much for talking to us. It's been just such a fun conversation with you. Oh, I've enjoyed it too. Thanks, Andy. All right. Thanks. All right. All right, bye. Bye bye. Bye.
Thanks so much for joining us today in our conversation with Dr. Andy Billings. It was really fun to talk with Andy today about all that's going on, especially in the middle of this global pandemic. Next week, we talk with Dr. Matt Van Dyke, who does a lot of research in environmental communication and risk communication. So if you've ever wondered about the role that media can play in the middle of things like a natural disaster, and we're in hurricane season right now, tornado season right now, if you've ever wondered how the media effectively send out messaging during those times, tune into this episode. And if you do like what you've heard, please don't hesitate to leave us a rating, a five-star rating if you don't mind, so that other listeners can find us as well. See you next week.